Thank you, choir and praise team. Thank you, Emma, for reading from Ruth 3. Turn there, if you will. This past year, somewhere between five and a half and six billion, with a B, dollars were spent on dating sites. All right? Over 300 million people use dating sites regularly. And I'm not speaking against them or trying to make any judgment about that. That's just the reality. They are, for some of you who are old enough to know what I'm talking about, they're the new personal classifieds, right? Um, remember the song, you know, if you like pina coladas and dancing in the rain? Remember that? If you're not into yoga and you have half a brain, all right, never mind. Never mind. So that's not a new concept. The first personal ads came around sometime in the late 1600s, they tell us. There was a lady named Helen Morrison who posted an ad in 1727 in the Manchester Weekly Journal. And so many words, she professed her desire for a nice gentleman who could support her and take care of her. And one of the gentlemen who read that ad was the mayor of the city. He took exception to it and he locked her away in an insane asylum for a month as punishment. So it, so it wasn't shined on. I mean, it wasn't, you know, wasn't seen on a very good light back in the day. So this, this sermon isn't about singleness per se, and it's not about marriage per se, although that is the context for everything that we see unfolding in Ruth chapter 3. But I think all of us recognize the reality that our life can be in a place where often we'd prefer it not be, right? Whether that's singleness, whether that's recent singleness in the loss of a loved one, whether that's just circumstances that... Could we pick and choose? That's not what we would pick or choose. But we don't get to pick and choose, do we? We don't get to choose what our life circumstances are. And like much of God's providence, all of God's providence, some of it is bitter and some of it is sweet. And sometimes those lines are blurred. And sometimes we don't know and won't know, right, until we have an eternal perspective whether it was bitter or sweet. We just know that, as we've said now for a couple of weeks, that Romans 8.28 is illustrated in some beautiful ways in the book of Ruth. That God is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We've seen the reality of all these biblical promises being played out. That if we do trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. And in all of our ways, all of our decisions, all of our circumstances, all of our relationships, if we will trust in him and not rely on our own hearts, like all the people in the book of Judges were doing, with the exception of a few that we see in Ruth, then that he will direct our steps. And he'll give us the desires of our hearts. It's the coolest thing to see it unfolding in the book of Ruth. And so... That's what we do today as we look at Ruth chapter 3. And sometimes, as we see in Ruth, and as we see when we look in the mirror, we feel like God's forgotten His promises. 
He's forgotten his Hesed love, his covenant commitment to his people. It seems like somehow he's removed and we're taken off the burner as far as God goes. But we've seen in the book of Ruth, and we'll see it again today, that God never leaves or forsakes his own. Right? Amen? He never leaves or forsakes his own. And so, the provision that we see coming from God, and here's the cool thing about it, the provision that we see coming from God comes in concert with the prayers and the faith and the efforts of his people. His providence is working in and through all of those things to bring about his good purposes. And it's a symphony sometimes. It's a, it's, it's a cooperative effort. Now, there's times when God works and moves completely removed from anything we do or we see his people do in the Bible. But more often than not, it's, it's a concert. It's a cooperative effort between the prayers of God's people as they pray for something and then as they begin to work and walk in faith toward that thing that they're praying for and God answers their prayer and does and moves in, in ways that only He can do. And so we come to, to Ruth chapter 3 and what we see is God proving Himself to be a faithful provider. We see His kindness being poured out on this older lady named Naomi We see her heart being changed by that kindness, by that Hesed love, that covenant commitment. And we see that all of a sudden now her focus is taken off of herself. And it's on Ruth's well-being and her future and how she can pray and work toward Ruth's future. Ruth chapter 3 is one of those chapters that if we interpret it with cultural Eyes, if we try to understand it even through a contemporary understanding of scriptural truth, we're going to make a train wreck out of it. All right? It's going to appear to be something that it's not. Because it is filled with unfamiliar cultural practices, and it is filled with words by God's sovereign choice that are filled with nuance. In fact, double meanings, sometimes multiple meanings in these words. And so we can take those words and someone might interpret it one way and someone might interpret it another way. And so the undertones of it are provocative. They can be sexual. They can be very, you know, they can just be real difficult for us to kind of navigate through. I'll tell you now, men, this is not what you ought to ask your daughters to do. All right, women. Don't ask your daughters to do what Naomi asked Ruth to do. It is not prescriptive. It is descriptive of a culture and an understanding, and I believe of a deep faith. At a practical level, it was risky. It was very risky. It could have gone badly for Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, but it didn't. Okay, it didn't. And we see God governing their actions. I believe he's governing their hearts. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a neat story. It's a good thing to see. So let's look at it. Follow along in your sermon notes. God has a wonderful plan for Ruth's life. If you've heard that before, I mean it to be that way. And so does Naomi, as a matter of fact. Okay. Now, some see her as a meddling mother-in-law, scheming, 
Some say she's spent too much time at home sending Ruth out to work, reading romance novels and magazines, and getting these ideas. But no. She understands the Hesed covenant love of God now, and she understands it in a whole new way. And here's what the deal is. When we are focused in on ourselves and concentrating on our issues and our problems and our difficulties, when we are missing that providential, gracious hand of God because of the bitterness of our circumstances, we find ourselves paralyzed by hopelessness. In despair, it's hard to be forward-thinking. When we're discouraged or depressed, we don't make plans for the future, right? We're just trying to get by, trying to make it another day. And, and it appears that Ruth has been in this place, excuse me, Naomi has been in this place where she's been paralyzed by despair. It's Ruth that takes the initiative in chapter 2 to go take care of Naomi. It's Ruth that takes the initiative to go work. But something begins to happen. Remember, Naomi's testimony was, God sent me away full and he's brought me back empty. Her testimony and what she was preaching to herself was, God has dealt very bitterly with me. But in the midst of that bitterness and despair, she sees God being faithful and demonstrating his covenant love to her through Naomi's hard work, through, through Ruth's hard work, and through Boaz's generosity. And all of a sudden, she sees the blessing of God come at the end of chapter 2. She sees God being faithful, and her heart begins to change, and it motivates her to exercise faith and to step out and to exert some effort. And she does this in a way that is looking for the well-being of this young woman who has committed herself to Naomi, to Ruth. She wants the best for her. Remember, she had offered them earlier in chapter 1 the opportunity to go back to Moab or Pa. Her other daughter-in-law went back. Ruth said, no, I'm going with you. I'm committed to that. Naomi saw that. And one of the things that Naomi said to her back then was, well, I want for you safety. I want for you to be in a home where you can be nourished and protected. Go back home. That's where that will happen. Well, her heart for Ruth is now being seen again in a very similar way, but the circumstances are different. The circumstances are different. And what we see, this is something that just kind of struck me early this morning. What we see in Ruth and Naomi are people who, because of God's covenant, hesed, care, and commitment to them, have the same kind of covenant, hesed, care, and commitment to one another. And we hear this passage in a wedding, but listen, that deep covenant commitment that goes between these two women is a picture of what ought to be present in the body of Christ today. Because God has been faithful to us as individuals, we therefore should desire and pray and work to be faithful to one another. So that the Hesed commitment, that Hesed covenant love, that kindness of God that's been poured out to me will just be funneled out to others. Now, I think that's what we see in Ruth and Naomi as we move our way through this book. Naomi desires for, she's prayed for, and now she works for Ruth to have, notice what it says, for her to have well-being. May it be well with you. I want rest for you, my daughter, she says. 
So Ruth wants her to have what in that cultural setting, and still should be the case, I believe, in a cultural setting, peace and and a sense of security inside the covenant of marriage. That's what marriage is intended to be. And that's what she wants for Ruth. And so she says, Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? So, again, kind of reflecting back on chapter 2, Ruth said, you know, she's reporting back and said, you know, this is, this is the man I've been with. His name is Boaz. He's shown kindness. And Naomi goes, oh, yeah, Boaz is a good boy. You need to hang out with Boaz's people. It would be good for you. Undergoing, underlying all of this is this, I think there's an attraction. There's a recognition and an attraction. There's an, a recognition a recognition on Naomi's part that Boaz is a man who is worthy. He's a good man of character. He's known for that in the city. He's single. Wow, what a coincidence. Ruth, you're single. You know, you, you need a man to take care of you, and he needs a woman to take care of There's all these things kind of undergoing in here. That's it's one of the cool things about the story. She's had her eyes on Boaz. She knows that Boaz is morally and spiritually qualified to be that kind of a husband. He's a man of worthiness. He's a man of integrity. She knows he's financially qualified, right? He owns these fields. He's well off. And she knows that he is culturally, even religiously or legally qualified. And that's where we get into this term called this kinsman redeemer. This Leverite marriage law. And I'm not going to take the time to develop it, but there's a clause. There's a statement back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 25 that gives for the provision of a man's widow, if he dies, that his brother would marry her. So as to continue that line, so as to see that the name doesn't diminish and the inheritance isn't lost. So there's a provision in the law for a Leverite marriage to take place. It's to be done by somebody that's a next of kin. And, and Boaz is qualified for that. And he is a kinsman redeemer. And we've talked about, Jason beautifully prayed about what a redeemer is. We'll talk more about that next week as we wrap up chapter 4. But it is someone who sees a need, has the, has the ability to take care of that need, and is willing to pay the price and take responsibility for that. And that's what Boaz is. So Naomi comes up with a strategy, okay? So let's look at what that strategy is. She says, see, he's on the winnowing, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So here's this strategy. Here's this plan. Some would call it a scheme. I, I don't think there's ill intent behind it at all. The first step is, Ruth, it's time for you to step out of mourning and step back into life. Implied in all of this is up until this time, she has been seen as, dressed as, acted as a, a widow in mourning, which culturally she should. And so I think part of what Naomi is saying to her, Ruth, it's time to get on with life. Wash yourself, anoint yourself, 
This is, this is common in the time. All right. There's no deodorant. There's no, you know, there's not showers. If you've traveled overseas like many of us have, you're struck immediately in some cultures by just the smell. And it's nothing that's out of line culturally. It's just different for us who take showers twice a day and use deodorant. The point is, Ruth, take a bath, clean up, anoint yourself probably with some type of olive oil or oil that's been infused with a fragrance, and, and put on normal clothes. Just, just dress normal. It's the same thing we see King David doing after his child had died. After he's prayed and fasted and sought its healing, but God saw that that wasn't the direction it was going to go. God took the life of that child, and David got up, he got dressed, he washed, he cleaned, he ate, he worshipped, he got on with life. That's what Ruth is doing here. And note, she is not putting on a victorious secret garment. We need to, we need to understand that. She's not dressing provocatively. Some versions say, you know, put on your best dress. That is not at all what Naomi is telling Ruth to do. The word that's used there, simla, is a word that is literally a full body garment from head to foot. It's, a, it's, an, it's an outer garment. If you read in Exodus chapter 22, God told his people not to take that garment in trust or as compensation or if you will as as surety on a debt don't take that from a poor person because that's what they need to cover up with that's what they need to guard themselves against cold it's just a normal poor man's poor woman's dress is what one commentator called it so take a bath anoint yourself get dressed then go to the threshing floor now, this could have been a high heel. This could have played, it would have been someplace with a hard surface because threshing is not easy work. We've talked about that. You take the bundles, you beat them on the ground, the heavy grains fall to the ground, the chaff blows away, especially at night. It's being done at night when the winds have picked up. And then you take the, the, the stems that are left, the stalks that are left, and put them aside. And so you do that work. Well, that's what Boaz will be doing, Naomi says. That's what all the men are doing when they're out at this time of night, at this time of the year. Go there, she says. Don't let him see you there. Now, there's no implication here. She says he'll be eating, he'll be drinking. It says later on that Ruth is there. He's eating and he's drinking and he's having a merry, he has a merry heart. There's no indication at all that Naomi tells Ruth, you make sure you get him drunk and take advantage of the situation. That is not what the text says and that is not what happened. That's what... Ruth's ancestors had done. That's what Lot's daughters had done to their dad. And that's where the Moabites come from. As those daughters get their dad drunk, have an incestuous relationship with him, and the offspring are called the Moabites. Ruth doesn't do that. She says, stay hidden and watch him lie down. And then she says, go Observe the place where he lies, uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So this is where it starts getting difficult, okay? Those words could be interpreted in the Hebrew language as Naomi telling Ruth to do something that's risque, seductive, and is going to lead to some sexually charged moment under the starry skies. 
And without the context of Ruth and Boaz's character, we could go that direction. But what the text tells us about their character will not let us move in that direction unless it... it, Listen, does the Bible ever not tell us what's going on? For crying out loud, this is the time in the life of Israel when a poor young girl was cut up into 12 pieces after she'd been ravaged throughout the night, and the Bible tells us that. Do, do we think God is trying to shield our poor little innocent eyes here? No. No, that's not, what, that's not what's going on here. Uncover, she says. Uncover his feet. That word can have, in some settings, a sexual connotation of, of taking that covering off, of uncovering the whole body. To lie down with can have that same meaning in some places. It can have... Uh, the connotation of a husband and wife lying together in that relationship, or a man and a woman lying together in that relationship. The third word that's difficult here is the word for foot, because that word can also mean other body parts. So it's filled with opportunity to explode off the page with some kind of crazy scene, some sexual picture. The ambiguities are, are they're provocative. And they could be difficult. But interpreting this as some kind of sexually seductive situation ignores what has been absolutely clear about Boaz's character and Ruth's, right? We see that. Now, we will also see that good people can be put in difficult situations. I think that's an application for us. I'll touch on that in a minute. Finally, Naomi tells her, after you do all this, just wait and do what he tells you to do. Wow, Ruth, I'm going to send you into a situation where you are absolutely vulnerable. Absolutely vulnerable. Under normal circumstances, she was, right? She'd already been warned, be careful what field you go into and what guys you hang around. And now she's walking into it well-dressed, smelling nice, in the middle of the night. Wow. So she went down to the threshing floor, it tells us next. And now all of a sudden we see this encounter, this, this plan being played out step by step. And it's Ruth and Boaz's risky encounter on the threshing floor, and God blesses it. God, God's just got his hands all over it, I think. There's two phases here. One is the actual encounter, and then there's the morning after. There's always a morning after. And so that's what it has for us here. She went down to the threshing floor just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. This is very common. Some scholars say that this was a period of the year, a time, a season of the year, where it was not uncommon to men to be out there at night taking care of their crops, celebrating the success, and things quickly get out of hand. It's like that country boy's party in the back of the truck in the back of the field that all the songs are about. It's not uncommon for something like that to happen. But here's Boaz, and he's done his work. It's been a fruitful day. There's a pile of grain there that would be very commonly protected at night. You don't just leave it there for someone to come and take or animals or whatever. So it's common for him to be there. And so after he's drunk, after he's eaten, after he's celebrated and had a good time, and after he's, you know, just 
I think this is a picture of a man who works hard and enjoys the blessing of that without going crazy. Doing it in a righteous way. And so he does that. And as he lays down, she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. This is risky. <laughs> this, is, this is a gamble, if I've ever seen one. Daniel Block, in his commentary, says, What are the chances that Boaz will wake up in his groggy state... And notice that Ruth is covered with a simla, that garment I mentioned, rather than the seductive garb of a prostitute. What are the chances that he will understand when she introduces herself? What are the chances he'll respond favorably to her, overlooking all the irregularities of the moment, which include a woman proposing to a man, a common laborer proposing to the landowner, a younger person proposing to an older person, and a foreigner proposing to a native. All of that is not on the to-do list, culturally speaking. So, so I love what Block says. What are the chances that he's going to wake up and take all this the way he should? He says this, Naomi has confidence in Boaz's integrity and apparently in the hidden hand of God to govern Boaz's reactions when he awakens. Amen. God is governing that. So there's this risky encounter. She uncovers a portion of him, at least his feet, probably his legs, and lays down. There's no indication that they're playing spoons. There's no indication that she does anything inappropriate. It doesn't really tell us how she lays down. It says that she just lays down. His heart is good. It's a picture of a... One commentator said it's a contented man at peace with himself and with God and in harmonious step with a world that is yielding its fruit as a result of God's blessing. So here he is. He's worked hard. He's enjoying the fruit of that. He's sleeping at some point in night. He, and I like this fact that he's like me, he can't sleep with cold feet. His feet have to be covered. And evidently at some point in time in the night, he wakes up and realizes, wait a minute, my feet aren't covered. And so maybe in the dark, he reaches down there and starts to move the covers up and that hand, wait, that's not my leg. <laughs> he reaches down and, and, and wakes up. And does what anybody would do. Who are you? We're in the dark here, okay? There's, do you see this unfolding? As Ruth uncovers his legs and lays down and he can't sleep, the cold wakes him up, he gropes for his covers. Now given the spiritual climate of the day, which is what? The day of judges. There's no king in the land and every do, everyone does what? What is right in his own eyes. So given that cultural climate of the day... Here's an average man who's had a good night. He's evidently had a fairly good bottle of wine or something with it. And he rolls over and there's a strange woman there. And I'm thankful Boaz is not average. And I'm thankful Ruth is not average. And I'm thankful that their hearts are controlled by God, and therefore their bodies are too. In the dark, he can't tell who she is, so he asks. 
And in her answer, we have another picture of her character. In her answer, we have another picture of her self-awareness and another picture of her boldness. And here's where many of the presidents, our current president, our former president, probably a whole lot of presidents, men and women, can identify with, wait a minute, she's going off script. What is she about to say? This is not what Naomi told her to do or say. Okay? This is not in the instructions. This is not in the transcript. She doesn't say, I'm Ruth a Moabite, a foreigner. She has said that before. And she doesn't say, I'm the daughter-in-law of Naomi. She said that before. And she doesn't say, I'm the widow of Mahalon. That's been known. She answers and says, I am Ruth, your servant. And the word that she uses for servant there is not the same word that's used in chapter 2, which is there, a common laborer, even a slave. The word she uses here is handmaid. And there's significance in that. There's, there's still humility. There's still a recognition that, Boaz, I'm depending upon you for provision and protection and security. There's still a subservience here, but there is an equality as well in that word. Ruth is elevating herself here beyond a Moabite, beyond a widow, beyond a labor girl. She's putting herself on a level plane and saying, I'm worthy of you, Boaz. It's cool. It's cool. And so here we see her responding. The second part of what she says, again, is not on script. This is, if Naomi were over in the background hiding, listening, she would be cringing at this point in time. Going, no, stop, stop. No, don't say that. But Ruth plows in. Spread your wings over your servant. For you are a redeemer. Now, this is saying more about Boaz than it is about Ruth. It's about them both, but it's, it's saying much about him. And make no mistake about it, this is a marriage proposal. Okay? In the context and the culture of the day, this is Ruth asking Boaz to marry her. She can't go to the field and kneel down on one knee and open up a little box. She can't wait for the big screen there at the, in the stadium to shine the light on her as she proposes to this man. That's not how it works. But this is a proposal. Make no mistake. And what she is requesting here is that Boaz, at least in part, would be the answer to the prayer that he prayed in chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2? Where he just acknowledged and, and, and just praised her and, and said, Blessed be you as you come. And it says, as you come and take refuge under the wing under that, I'm, I'm looking for it in my, in my notes here in the Bible. And as, and as she, she comes and takes that place, and, and he just blesses her for that, under whose wings you have come and taken refuge, it says in verse 12. Okay? So he's prayed for that. He's blessed her with that. He's asked that for her. And now she's asking him to be a part of that answer. Take some responsibility, Boaz, and be a part of the answer of protection and provision and security. And the word here, the Hebrew word for kanap, does mean wings, but it means so much more. There's, there's so much meaning in that. And, and one of the meanings that we would see if we were looking at a traditional Jewish wedding is this shawl, this covering, this piece of cloth that the, that the groom and the bride stand there and they have it over their shoulders together. They're together wearing that over their shoulders. And at some point in time in the ceremony, it would be lifted up and held over their head. 
Some say that there's little four-corner posts there sometimes. That's symbolic of that as well. It can be used in that way as well. But what that canop, those wings, what that covering says is that we are coming in as one. We are under the same covering. We are under the same covenant. We are coming together in this relationship. It's a beautiful picture of coming together earlier under the covering and protection of God and now coming together in this relationship. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 16, the very same phrase is used. Listen to this. God is speaking to his people, whom, by the way, he has seen lying in blood on the side of the road. When I passed you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. This is God speaking to his people. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So it's clear there that there's a connection, I think, all the way through this story between Boaz and Ruth. There's, there's been some connections there, but societal and cultural reasons, Boaz is older. How does an older man tell a younger man he's interested without crossing the line someplace? How does a younger woman go further than she probably should? Well, we see all that playing out in this context. And what we've heard over and over again is of their character. Here's what one writer said. As they heard what one writer was referring back to chapter 2. When Boaz spoke this blessing, may the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. One writer said this, the more Naomi and Ruth ponder these words, the more they become convinced that they are laden with subtle, loving intention. What Boaz really means is, because you take refuge under the wings of God, you are the kind of woman I want to cover with my wings. They go on and say it's not easy for an older man to express love to a younger woman. Boaz did it with deeds of kindness and subtle words of admiration. He said he admired her for coming under God's wings, and now he's acting as though she were under his. She puts herself under his wings, so to speak, and when he awakes, everything hangs on one sentence. Has Ruth interpreted Boaz correctly? Has Naomi Is he the man she thinks he is? There must have been a silence there for a minute. Ruth says what she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And I think there was probably a little break there between verses 9 and 10. Kind of this moment of silence. This cloud, this fog, this haze disappears. And all of a sudden we see that, yeah, you know what maybe was in between the lines now is becoming clear. The same writer said, this is powerful stuff. Anybody who thinks that a loose woman and a finagling mother-in-law are at work here are on another planet. It is subtle. It is strategic. It is righteous. And so... Boaz makes this reply. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. First, there's a word of blessing. May you be blessed by the Lord. Then there's a word of praise. You see that? There's a word of praise there. Because this last kindness is greater than the first. And what's he talking about there? I think he's talking about everything that's unfolded in chapter 2. That Ruth's life has been a picture of Hesed commitment to Naomi. She left her family. She left her, her home. She left everything that was familiar with her and went with Naomi to this place. 
She's poured her life out for Naomi. Not only has Boaz recognized it, but so have others. So it's a word of praise. It's also a word of reality. You're not limited to just pursue me, Ruth, Boaz is saying here. You could have gone after young men. You could have gone after younger men who are richer or poor. You have that freedom. That's implied in verse 10. But she didn't do that. And now there's this word of value, this word of reception. He calls her my daughter. He's done that before. But there's such strength in that. There's such security in that. And there's a word of promise. Naomi has said, do whatever he asks. Right? Well, now guess what? Boaz is doing whatever Ruth asks. It's almost like the roles are reversed. Boaz says, I will do what you ask. And I think implied in this, I will do it gladly and I will do it proudly. Because everybody in town knows what kind of woman you are, he says in verse 11. My fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So cue the music. You ready? Violins going on in the background. A time for love is blasting in the background someplace. The stars are shining. The birds, well, they're not. It's late night, so they're not out. But just whatever romantic song you want playing on the soundtrack, let it roll, okay? Just wafting through. Oh, shoot. Wait a minute. It goes to a minor key. And then there's a dissonant note in there somewhere. Oh, crud, we hadn't planned on this. Yeah, it's true, I am a redeemer, he says in verse 12. But there's another one. There is a redeemer nearer than I. I can't imagine. I wonder if Ruth's heart just went thud. If she just like, are you kidding me? Am I going to have to do this again with somebody else? What what is going on here? So, no. It's just an amazing picture of integrity again. I believe Boaz has a heart for this woman. And she has a heart for him. But his integrity will not him let him cross cultural lines or even biblically legal lines within the context of that setting. So he says, there is another Redeemer... But Ruth, know this, and three times in that text we see this. You will be redeemed. All right? There is a Redeemer nearer than I. In verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning. If He will not redeem you, and the Word is redeem you. Ruth, you will be redeemed. Let Him do it if He's the one. If He is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, here's this oath, this pledge, this promise. I will redeem you. Ruth, you will be rescued. You will be redeemed. You will be taken care of. That I promise. What a picture of integrity. Boys, be like Boaz. Men, be like Boaz. Here's this man who says... I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to see that you are taken care of. Now he says, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize her. Before one could recognize another, it says. And so here's this picture again of, of, of a recognition of caring for her and watching out for her reputation and 
just being a man of integrity and making sure that he upholds the integrity of that woman. He says, stay here. He does not use a word that would say, let's hook up or let's sleep together. Or no, the word he uses there is the same word that Ruth used earlier in the book when she says, You're, where you dwell, I will dwell. So it's just stay here. It's very generic. It's very safe. Boaz will not take advantage of this woman. The stars are bright. It's night. He feels good. She's there by choice. She's clean. She smells good. I mean, we can go. The opportunity is there. And Boaz is not going to be like most men and do what physical impulses or culture would tell him to do. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of worth. And he's going to protect her even as she goes home. So you see, this is not just about inheritance. This is not even just about a family name. It is about that. It is about much more. It is about a godly man and a good man and a godly woman and a good woman and a good God. And their hearts are set on him and his heart is set on them. And in harmony together, God's good purposes are being done, and they will be blessed. So in the morning, there's a concern for her reputation. We don't want anybody to know that you've been here. There's a concern for her and Naomi's well-being. He says, bring your garment, and she holds it out, and he pours into it six measures of barley. I don't know how much that is. Commentators don't know how much that is. Some have said it could have been as much as 80 or 100 pounds. I mean, this is not a little weenie woman, by the way. I don't believe that for a minute. Not the way she works. But there's no, there's no indication here of how much it is. It is enough for this. For Ruth to know that he is serious and generous and that's not changing. It's enough for Naomi to know he is a worthy man, he's a generous man. And Naomi, I want you to know I trust your plan and I'm in. I'm in. I will do this. It's a sign of commitment, I think. And so she comes home and she comes in the door and I don't think any of them got much sleep the night before. I really don't. I think, I think Naomi's been there. Oh, I wonder how this is going. I know he's a good boy. She's a good girl. I wonder how it's going. She comes in the door. How did you fare, my daughter? Literally in the Hebrew, it says, who are you? Not in that she didn't know who you are, but it's, did it go well? How are you doing? How did it go? And Ruth tells her and shows her. (laughs) She had done all that the man had done. She told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, and he said to me, you must go back, not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So she's saying, Naomi, this is for you from Boaz. And in verse 18, she's told to wait, which she's been doing now for several months. And she will do it again for the next few hours. And in the Hebrew, it literally means, let's just wait and see how matters fall. Let's just see how it all plays out. But I know that the man will not rest until it is settled today. The real love story behind this love story is all that we see in the character of Boaz, who is, by the way, a type, a picture of Christ. The real love story here about the redemption is what we saw earlier in Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm not going to go back and read that again, but I want you just to remember, I encourage you to go back and read Ezekiel chapter 16. 
of this of this person, this woman who's come to age, her breasts are developed and she's laying in blood. She is a miserable, filthy sight. And that is a picture of every single one of us. Every single one of us as rebels who are drowning in the consequences of our rebellion. And God comes along and sees that filthy mess of who we are, loves us, cares for us, takes the cost and the consequences upon himself to redeem us, clean us, and claim us as his own. That's what that text said in Ezekiel chapter 16. It's the love of God, the redemption of God, the covering of God. So my question to you as we finish is, do you need to be covered today? And I'm talking about the sin stains in your heart that only you know, and even then, only in those quiet moments of reflection. When you're conscious and the enemy who's opposed to your soul would tell you you are a worthless wreck. And you are beyond help. Well, the picture in Ruth 3 and the picture in Ezekiel 16 and the picture of the cross says, no, you are not beyond help. You are redeemable. And Jesus is the means of that redemption. Jesus is the means for you to be covered and protected and provided and saved. Come to Christ for that. Secondly, are you waiting? I mean, are you just in that chapter, that season of life that seems to be a to be continued? Just doesn't end? Are you waiting for God to move? Are you waiting for Him to show Himself faithful? I read Psalm 37 last week and I was reading it again this morning and just thinking about, um, thinking about the promises of God to those who are surrounded by a culture and a whole a whole host of a population who just does what is right in their own eyes. And over and over in Psalm 37, God says, fret not. Don't fret over the evildoers. Don't fret over the one who seems to prosper in his way. Don't fret over everything that tends to be only evil, he says in verse 8. You can trust me. I'll take care of the evildoers, he says. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be still and wait on me. And as you wait, you pray. And you move toward that which you are praying. You work toward that which you are praying. You walk in faith toward that which you are praying. And trust God to answer it. Or to redirect you if he needs to. But waiting is not doing nothing. So wait in faith. And then finally, and I said it, but men, there is nothing more countercultural to our day and women, there is nothing more countercultural to our day than Ruth and Boaz. I'm telling you, it's, it's astounding. In our culture and in our day, and listen, I'm talking to you 13-year-olds as well as to you 63-year-olds or whatever. Because the culture will tell you the stars are bright, it's a nice night, you got a little buzz on maybe. You just do whatever feels natural. Just go for it. After all, that's how you were made. That's what the culture will tell you. God will tell you through his word and through examples of godly people around you and godly people recorded in the word like Ruth and Boaz that no, don't do what your heart tells you to do. Don't follow your heart or your physical impulses. Or the circumstances. 
Don't do that. Don't wreck your life. Trust God. Wait on God. The mood of life around us today is if it feels good, go for it and to heck with whatever guilt or whatever you may feel tomorrow morning. But no, don't do that. Don't do that. And this is a beautiful picture of how it'll end up a beautiful picture of just how powerful self-control and integrity are. And that comes through Christ. Trust him for it. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful story. We thank you for it. What beautiful people. Thank you for Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. What a beautiful picture of faithfulness shining through against the darkness of a broken, depraved, seek-your-own-way world. Lord, thank you for reminding us of that today. And I pray, God, for the strength of Christ, the power that raised him from the dead to be poured out on your people, Lord, today, so that we can walk worthy. Worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Worthy of the covenant love that you've poured out on us. Worthy in that covenant commitment we have to one another. Father, I pray for that teenager today who's struggling with this. I pray for that single person today who's struggling with this. I pray for that married couple who's struggling with with maintaining holiness and integrity and purity in their hearts and in their home. And God, we thank you for your faithfulness and your provision for us in all these things. More than anything, we thank you for Jesus, our faithful Redeemer. He understands our weakness. He knows our pain. He knows our frailty. He knows everything except the sin, and He redeems us out of that sin. Praise You, Lord, and thank You for that. We worship You today, and we pray that our lives would be demonstrating that same worship and commitment to You, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.